0: Well, since early December, we have been looking at the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus, an amazing woman, and we've noted her extraordinary faith, her great courage, her uh, quiet humility, and her willing obedience. Yet, as remarkable as Mary was, she was also quite human. She was not, as some have taught, perfect. That's what makes, I think, this story for some a little bit disorienting. That's because Mary, like us, made mistakes, and sometimes she got things wrong. And while it might sound surprising to our ears, at one time, Mary thought she knew better than Jesus what he should be doing. Now that may seem shocking, but let me just say, I think it can also be reassuring because we have many of the same tendencies that Mary did. And our story helps us to understand that just as she got back on track, so can we. You see, by the time that Jesus was traveling the countryside and teaching and performing miracles, His own family, his mother, and his brothers and sisters weren't sure what to do with him. The idea that Mary had children may surprise some of you because there is a teaching in some churches that says that Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born and she remained a virgin through the rest of her life. So whenever there's a reference to brothers and sisters, some suggest that, well, perhaps they were close, like cousins, and so they just sort of thought of themselves as brothers and sisters. Or maybe it is that Joseph had been married earlier, his wife had died, and so the children that came in from his first marriage were Jesus' brothers and sisters. But the plain meaning of the text is that Jesus had biological siblings. These were Mary's children. Now back to the story here, and that is that Mary's biggest problem with what Jesus was doing was actually because of the Bible, at least her understanding of the Bible, When Jesus' mother and brothers and sisters heard the word Messiah, they thought of someone who was like Moses or David or Solomon or Jeremiah or Elijah or all rolled up together. So to bring it into our contemporary world, it would be a little bit like thinking of a combination of Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant and C.S. Lewis and Mother Teresa and Billy Graham. So Mary had a script for the way that she thought things would play out. But Jesus didn't follow that. From the time the angel surprised her and let her know that she would be the mother of the Messiah, she had an idea of how things would go. She anticipated that her son would be the one who would bring peace and prosperity to the land. But the problem was, Jesus didn't act in all the ways that she had been expecting. By the way, that happens for us today. It's not that there is one Jesus, but a lot of Jesus'es, at least different conceptions of what Jesus really is. To some, he's a moral example. To others, he's just a wise teacher. To still more, he's a compassionate friend. And to a few, he's that masculine, braveheart guy, kind of a bro's bro. Some even think of him as a political revolutionary, and that's some on the right and some on the left as well. One reason that there are so many Jesuses out there in the world is that we are looking for him to support our pet causes. The writer Anne Lamont once said that you can safely assume that you have created Jesus in your own image when he hates the same people you hate. Mary didn't know it, but she had invented a Jesus that conformed to her preconceptions. She wanted a righteous warrior dude who would rise up and drive the Romans into the heart of the Mediterranean Sea, someone who would rid the temple of corrupt priests who had a stranglehold on the religious life in the nation of Israel. Mary lived in a little town called Nazareth, and her neighbors had a mixed reaction to Jesus. They weren't too sure either what to do with him. That's why one day when Jesus showed up in town and stood up to speak in a Sabbath service, they weren't impressed. Sure, he was clever and wise, and he did a few miraculous things, but Messiah, no way, because they'd known Jesus since he was a child. Yeah, he was a bit precocious. He'd aced all his exams and Torah studies, but... You know, he really wasn't that special. The idea that Joseph, the carpenter's son, was anything more than your average run-of-the-mill guy seemed preposterous to them, and so they were offended. Maybe you're a little above average, but let's not get carried away here, guy. These claims you're making are offensive. Who do you really think that you are? But there was something else that was playing into all of this, and that is the rumors they'd heard. Rumors about him having meals with tax collectors and other sinners. No self-respecting Messiah would do that. The Messiah's job was to purge Israel of sinners, not hang out with them, but that's what Jesus did. Now, at this point in the story, the crowds loved Jesus, but the religious authorities had taken great offense to him. They would turned on him. In fact, Mark tells us that the, the uh, Pharisees, the most important and conservative of the religious sects at the time, had already made the decision early on that they wanted to see Jesus eliminated. So it's no wonder that his own family was concerned and their concern spilled over into action. So just as Jesus' popularity is taking off, Mark says that Jesus entered into a house attracting a great crowd, one so big that he and his disciples couldn't even find something to eat. (laughs) And it's then that Mark tells us that when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said, he's out of his mind. He's crazy. What's he doing, they thought. He's nuts. He needs to stop this nonsense and start acting like a real messiah. So Mary and the rest of the family decided that they needed to do an intervention. They needed to find him and see if they could talk some sense into him so he would start acting like a real messiah before he really messed everything up. Now what this shows, and I think this is the disorienting part for us, is that at this point in the story, Mary has no earthly idea what Jesus is up to. Now, early on, she thought she did, but now his behavior is creating all sorts of cognitive dissonance for her. And that's why she and her boys went to straighten him out. Now, when they arrived, the crowd was so big that they couldn't get near Jesus. So they asked someone uh, if they could just pass on the word to Jesus that they were there. So someone went up to him and said, you know, Jesus, your mother and your brother's they're outside. They want to talk to you. Now, it's clear what everyone expected to happen. That Jesus would pause the conversation because family was so important. He would get up, he'd go outside, and he would visit with them. After all, weren't children supposed to honor their parents? But with everyone watching, Jesus didn't do what everyone expected. He didn't get up. He didn't make his way outside. In fact, he didn't move at all. He asked a question. Who are my mother and my brothers? And he looked around those who were immediately around him, those who considered themselves his disciples, his followers. And he said loudly enough that everyone could hear, even those outside the house Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, everyone must have gasped. This is in a time when family was everything. What Jesus said was culturally offensive. There was nothing closer in the ancient world than family, than blood relationships. That's why it was normal for children to live near their parents, sometimes even in the same home. Often the family unit was where you found employment. Loyalty to family was a really big deal. But in two sentences, Jesus redefined family. Family, he implied, isn't formed by blood, but by relationship to him and obedience to God. That's what makes someone a true brother or sister. Now, even Mary... And Jesus' other brothers and sisters needed to be part of that more important family. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, to be clear, he's not rejecting family altogether. We'll see uh, evidence later that Jesus took his family responsibilities, particularly his responsibility to his mother, very seriously. And we should also not include that our families today aren't important. They are. But what we're saying and what Jesus is saying is that ultimately, the family that we need to be a part of is the family of God. That's the most important family of all. The biographies of Jesus made it clear that many struggled with Jesus. As I've mentioned already, the religious authorities had already turned on him. And they were virtually united against him all the way up until his death. John, in his biography of Jesus, says this, and he puts it very bluntly. He says, even his own brothers did not believe in him. So when Jesus said out loud with his family listening in that his true family were those who did the will of God by putting their faith in him and following the way of life that he had modeled day in and day out for them, he was saying to them, everyone needs to make a decision whether they're going to be a part of the more important family, the family of God. For the Jews listening in, what he was saying is that, hey, being a good Jew, being ethnically Jewish is not enough to his own family, Mary and his brothers and sisters, he's saying, you need to decide. Were you on board with me or not? Up until now, they assumed that their relationship with him was a blood relationship, but Jesus was challenging them. Would they follow him by joining his new family, the family defined by faith in Jesus and his mission and obedience to the will of God? And the same is true for us. Becoming part of of God's family is not being born into a Christian family. It's not even attending church, whether online or in person. It isn't even having all the right opinions, even though many of those are important. It isn't about being a good person. It is to be a follower of Jesus, to put our faith and trust in him and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, choosing to follow him with our whole hearts. So what did Mary decide? Well, I debated pausing and letting that question hang for a week because next week we're going to talk about it more in depth. But I really thought it would be encouraging for you to see how she did respond. You see, up until now, all the way through the story, those closest to Jesus, his mother, his brothers, and his sisters, were actually on the outside. They were Jesus' skeptics. They either didn't believe in him or they thought he was out of his mind. But one day that would change. That's because with time, for example, Mary came to understand more and more of what Jesus was up to. When Jesus died, she, along with many of his disciples, were heartbroken. But then, out of love and duty, she went with several of the other women to the tomb where Jesus had been buried to prepare his body for his final burial. But when she got to the tomb, she received the surprise of her life Jesus wasn't there. She would soon find that he had risen from the dead. Now, despite general disapproval and misunderstanding of Jesus for his entire life, it all changed for Mary and for the rest of the family after Jesus rose from the dead, and we know that because two of his brothers are listed as among the most important leaders in the early Christian church, James and Jude. In fact, James has written one of the most helpful books we have in the New Testament. I find so encouraging To see how someone who is a hardened skeptic, someone who seems totally resistant to the message of Jesus, can change and be softened by the love of God. Easter Sunday will be our 16th anniversary as church, and recently I've been reflecting on some of those early years. One of my memories is of the very first person who became a Christian through City Church, Jason and his wife um, attended, uh, were invited to attend a service by a family from here, from City Church. And at first, actually, Jason resisted coming. His wife and children came for a few weeks before he ever agreed to come. And when he did, I remember sitting out there, not here, but in the school we met in, and he was grumpy. Um, The face was grumpy. Everything about him was grumpy. But he came for a few weeks, and after one of those services, I just said to him, you know, how how you doing? And we had a brief conversation, and he made it very clear up front that he had a lot of problems with Christian faith. I said, well, would you be willing to get together, and let's just talk about some of those. It might be that I might have some helpful answers. So he agreed, um, although he seemed very skeptical, and we met at a caribou that was nearby here, And for an hour, he fired questions at me and I tried my best to answer. And some of those answers actually seemed helpful and other questions actually I couldn't answer. I had to tell him I would get back to him. But what surprised me is toward the end of that conversation, it seemed by his demeanor and by the way he was asking questions that he had softened considerably. In fact, the last few questions he had had more to do with how to become a Christian than about objections to Christian faith. We were winding up. I just asked him, I said does all this make sense, at least a little bit more to you than it did when we started? He said, yeah. And then I asked him what he thought would be keeping him. What were the questions that still remained that would maybe be in the way of him choosing to follow Jesus? And he shocked me by saying, frankly, nothing. And so in the minutes that followed, we talked directly about how it is you can become a follower of Jesus Christ, what it would mean to make a commitment to Jesus, to acknowledge our sin and our brokenness, to put our faith in him, the one who died, in order to forgive us of our sins and rose again to give us life both now and for eternity, to make a personal decision to become a part of the family of God. And so in that caribou, Jason and I prayed and he became a Christian. I don't know where you are right now. Maybe you were where Jason was at the beginning of that conversation we had in that caribou, and you've got questions and you need some answers, and if so, we'd love to have conversation with you. And maybe the Alpha Course you heard about just a moment ago might be helpful to you. It starts this Wednesday, and it really explores the basics of Christian faith. It addresses some of those in questions, the questions that Jason asked me that day so many years ago. But others of you may be where Jason was at the end of that conversation you may be ready to join God's family. And so if so, make today the day you make that important decision. The decision to become a part of the family that Jesus was talking about. The most important family that there is. The family of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to thank you for the words of Jesus. As startling as they are, we also see the need that we have to be a part of something bigger, something more important than even our earthly families. Family is important, very important, but most important is that we are a part of your family. And so it is by faith that we put our trust in your son and experience the forgiveness we so desperately need and find the hope that we simply must have as we anticipate an eternity with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.